When God Was Queer for the Titans Part 2. So, Part 2. Part 2. <laughs> jacuz. Um, so, there's going to be a lot of jacuz in this fucking episode. Um, and a gene pool that's the depth of a jacuzzi. <laughs> hey! Um, yeah, everybody's fucking their siblings. So, that's great. Um, but, yeah, we've got a lot to cover. And uh, we are going to jump right in. But before we do that, does anybody have any thoughts about what we covered in episode one? 6,000 babies is a lot of babies. 6,000 babies is a lot of fucking babies. It's too many babies. Um, I guess I've learned I either want to be a boy with beautiful hair or a mm. horse. You yeah. could be a boy horse with beautiful hair. True, I could. But then do you get to fly? Um, yeah, you have like so many different versions of flying then. Oh, okay. You have like, you have beautiful hair. You're Maybe you're a pegasus. I don't know. Who knows? Hmm. Oh my God. Now I'm thinking about like a pegasus with a lace front on. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a whole. For any of the people that watch Adventure Time, it reminds me of James Baxter, who is just a horse that balances on a circus ball and says their name. Oh. Uh, uh. But they have beautiful hair. <laughs> he just goes, James Baxter. And then just rolls around on a big circus ball. Uh. Um. Well, with the way that this has been going, that could be a Greek god. I just want to <laughs> point that out. Yeah. That may be a Greek god we cover in this episode. We'll find out about this. Fucking buckle up. Um, so... So, yeah, um, just diving right in, you know, we kind of covered how, like, the Titans fill in a lot of blanks. They're the middle generation. They kind of bridge the gap between the primordial gods and the Olympians. And that's going to make a lot more sense with this episode. So we're going to jump right in with our first pair because we're in the second half of the Titans. And that starts out with Hyperion. Hyperion is featured in some major myths. Um, but he's also, like, one of the prime candidates used to explain someone's divine parentage. It's like, whenever mm. it's like, yes, this hero was at a divine father. There's like, Zeus is always like a front runner. Um, and so are a couple others like Poseidon. Hyperion remains a front runner, even in like Olympian times. It's kind of oh. weird. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, and so the thing is that like Little's really known about him other than the fact that he's the first God that's associated with the sun. Sort of. Mm -hmm. It's kind of controversial. The thing is, is that Hyperion and his wife, Thea, who we're going to talk about next, they are the ones that bear Helios and Selene. Helios is the sun. Selene is the moon. And I mean that literally. They are the physical manifestation of the sun and of the moon. Now, in, in, he, in Hesiod's telling, they also bear Eos, goddess of the dawn, who we talked about. Old rosy fingers. Uh, really brings a new light to Rosie the Riveter, if you will. <laughs> However, classically speaking, Hyperion and Helios are separate gods with separate roles. And that would have been fine, but it got really muddled because Homer conflated them. This wouldn't have really been a big issue, but he fucking did it in the Odyssey. So now there's just like <laughs> generations of people who think that Hyperion and Helios are the same, and they're not. So to be clear, Hyperion is the god of watchfulness, wisdom, and light. And Helios is the physical incarnation of the sun. That's very different. Very different. The discovery of astronomy is attributed to Hyperion, however, uh, because he apparently was doing something with his time and it was studying the heavens, <laughs> which he lived in. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you have his wife, Thea, 
who is the Titan goddess of sight. And also the one who endowed gold, silver, and precious metals and gems with their worth. Now, here's the thing. She's implied to be a goddess of all shining things, which makes sense if your husband is light, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also in a larger, more metaphorical sense, she's also sort of the goddess of glory. Hmm. Interesting. She's got some interesting epithets like Eurofesa, which means wide shining. She's also sometimes called Aethra, which is interesting because that's like the bright sky. Remember Aether? Yeah. Yeah, so she's also possibly the feminized version of Aethra. So we've got Helios, who's the sun, Titan god of the sun, and he is understood to be the physical incarnation of the sun and the personification of the sun and of the generative creative powers that emanate from the sun. And this explains why Helios and other sun gods are seen as presiding over life and its creation. He's often depicted as young and handsome, bearing a radiant crown of sun rays, riding in a golden horse-drawn chariot across the sky. He was a guardian of oaths, and like his mother, was a god of sight. The idea is that if he's in the sky, he sees everything that light touches. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And that's going to play a pretty major role in some of the myths. (laughs) He's like Santa Claus, basically. Uh, But only if you're awake, not if you're sleeping. More like a Yenta, kind of? Yeah. He is the only one that knows that Hades snatched up Persephone because he's the only one that mm. witnessed it because the sun was up. Which, like... It kind of, it know, brings kind it, of new light or new a new vibe to the eye in the sky, if you will. Yeah, and it's also, like, in my characterization of Hades, like, is that something he wouldn't have been aware of? Like, did he want, <laughs> like, Helios to see? Because I feel like Hades is the type to be, like, if I'm doing this, mm. I'm not going to have a bunch of loose ends. And that seems like a pretty big loose end. Although it wouldn't be, because, not that we're going to get into Demeter and Persephone today, but he abducted Persephone because it was without her permission, but he had Zeus's permission, who was Persephone's father. Uh, right. Zeus yeah, gave him away to Hades without Demeter or Persephone's permission. Yeah. So really, he was doing a snatch and grab out of, like, opportunity and access and not out of trying to be secret. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Ivy League fuckboy shit. So, we've got Selene, who was the Titan goddess of the moon, and of course was the, you know, incarnation. Like her brother, she would drive a silver chariot pulled by two snow-white horses, or white bulls, across the sky. She was called white-armed, beautiful-haired, and benevolent. She was also called the all-seeing, all-wise Eye of Night, indicating that she probably had the same role as her brother as that literal eye in the sky during the night. Although at times she has been equated or conflated with Artemis and Hecate, who are also lunar goddesses, she's the only one who's actually seen as the personification of the moon itself. Mm. By the Renaissance, Selene is depicted as a beautiful woman with beautiful black hair driving a silver chariot by a yoke of white oxen or a pair of white horses. And her lovers included Zeus, Pan, and... Endymion. Endymion might sound familiar because she's the knight and I'm assuming a cousin, maybe an uncle of hers, is Hypnos. And Hypnos is the one that hypnotized, if you will, Endymion. So I don't know what's going on with Endymion, but he needs to stay away from gods of night because they are not his friends. (laughs) Because I feel like there's, and like, I don't know, that, that story of the moon falling in love with someone but then being far away or like something seems kind of common mm-hmm. like um, oh there's a whole myth there yeah yeah and then because i wonder about like helios's chariot was it just like something that he was like yeah i have a chariot or it was like that like something that was gifted to him 
Like, did he have to go through a process to get the horses and the chariot? Or is it just because he's the sun, that's just how the sun works? I believe it's the same maybe rebuilt chariot after the terrible tragedy in Ethiopia. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, yeah, his chariot, I believe, was not necessarily something he had to earn because I think it was sort of material personification of the actual sun. It's just how sun. the sun yeah. works. It just yeah. then, because I, the, the only reason I ask is because I think the bulls were given to Celine by Pan, if I remember. I think there's like a myth where Pan gives her those bulls. Mm, mm -hmm. So I was wondering if there's like a similar thing with Helios and the horse. Uh, there, there is. They're horses. divine born. <laughs> I, I gotcha. thought that might have been too much detail, but there are four of them. They're named, and each of them breathes fire, and has, like, they're almost ponyta, but, like, roided out. <laughs> and they all have names, and their <laughs> names awesome. mean, like, fiery, bright, shining. Like, that's basically the deal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of magic horses. <laughs> oh, wait until we talk about fucking Poseidon, because apparently horses are linked with water and come from the ocean. Or the wind. So weird. So it's just like, okay, fine, I guess. <laughs> They're just horses all yeah, over no, the place. All over like the place. The <laughs> all over the place. So um, our next pair is Coyus and Phoebe. So Coyus and Phoebe are quite the pairing. Coyus was the titan of rational thought, and Phoebe was the titan of prophetic wisdom. They were often characterized as the primal font of all the knowledge in the cosmos. At one point during his imprisonment with the other titans in Tartarus, apparently Coyus was not feeling very rational and had a full-on nervous breakdown, went completely mad, broke free of his chains, and attempted a prison break, basically. Wow. But this was thwarted because he was stopped by Cerberus, who I guess was not busy <laughs> hounding some lesbian to love somebody she didn't like. <laughs> hounding. <laughs> Very funny. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> sorry, everyone. Okay, so then we have Phoebe, who we mentioned. <laughs> Phoebe was the Titan goddess of prophecy and oracles. She was the divine inspiration behind the Oracle of Delphi, at least for a time. The Oracle was most famously sacred to Apollo, but there was a lineage of inheritance leading all the way back to Oranos, who it began with. It passed from Oranos to Themis, and then to Phoebe, who held it until after Apollo was born, and then he inherited it from her, because Apollo, her grandson, came to be the god most known for prophecy. That was her grandson, and that means we get to talk about Apollo's mom now. And her name is Leto. So Leto was the goddess of motherhood and was the mother to Apollo and Artemis. She's the goddess of motherhood, among other things. It's kind of ambiguous. Sometimes she's like a goddess of night, which like, okay. Um, but she's the mother to Apollo and Artemis. She was beloved by many and feared by all for the wrath that she would dispense if someone disrespected her. But today, we're going to talk about her less infamous characteristics, compassion and generosity to mothers. You see, there once lived a couple in a small village in Crete called Phaestus. All was not well, and the couple was at odds. You see, Galatea was pregnant, but Lampras, her husband, was staunch in his declaration that he would only accept a male child. Well, one day, while Lampras, who was a shepherd, was away tending his cattle, Galatea finally gave birth to a baby girl. Panicked and unsure what to do, she swaddled the baby and went to the seer in her village, a wizened old crone who knew many things. The seer told her to give the baby a man's name and to tell her husband she had given him a son, and this she did. And everything was fine until adolescence. Once again panicked and unsure of what to do, she sought out the seer. The crone by this point was even more wizened. She could no longer see a hand in front of her face, but all the more she could see the truth to so many mysteries. She told Galatea that her son would grow up to be an impressive man, a warrior of great renown, who would one day save Crete from the worst danger it had ever faced. 
Galatia was thrilled to hear this, of course, but was unsure of how we were going to get from point A to point B. The seer <laughs> told her to, to go to Leto's sanctuary and make her case in prayer and sacrifices and that everything would be fine. So Galatea went to the sanctuary of Leto, the great mother of Apollo and Artemis, and called out to her. Leto, great mother of all mothers, I need your help. My baby came out of me as if she was a daughter, yet I prayed for a son and a son I shall have. Dearest Leto, I know it can be done. I have always heard of the great hero Canius, of the prophet Tiresias, and the shape-changing Mestra. I've heard the stories of young lovers like Iphis, and I know of the sacred pools of Hermaphroditus. Please have mercy on another mother who just wants a good life for her child, and do this for me. Leto, hearing these prayers and witnessing the woman's sacrifices, took pity upon her and granted her wish. Leto was definitely the right goddess to approach, given that both of her divine children were known to be quite gender-variant themselves. Not long after this, Leuchippus grew into a stunning, impressive man, and would go on to fight valiantly for his people. A time would come for him to battle invaders, and then again to battle the monsters of the sea. He did it all, and he made his people proud. But Leuchippus never forgot the truth about his birth, nor what his mother had done for him. So when his wife came to give him seven daughters, he cherished and celebrated each one with his whole heart. The story spread, and in commemoration of the event, the people of Phaestus called her Letophetia, or Leto the Grower, as she made it possible for Leuchippus to grow a penis. They also established a major feast in Leto's honor called the Ecdesia, meaning to undress, just as Leuchippus had shed the clothes of a woman in order to be a man. It also became custom for the women of Phaestus to lie next to the statue of Leto the night before their wedding and pray for blessings in their new marital life. Mm. Fun fact, according to Sappho and Athenaeus, Leto and Niobe, who was a divine-born queen, were companions and lovers. Um, this gets very messy, and we'll do a deep dive on this when we get to the episodes <laughs> for Apollo and Artemis. Wow. And yeah, what do we think? I love that Like later when he would have a bunch of daughters, he's like... That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think also, like, the... I don't know, it's kind of like... It made me think of conversion camp. And it's like, going to a god to pray for, sure. for a trans child is very different. You can pray the sis away. <laughs> pray the sis away. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I never knew how, like, important Leto was. Like, I think I just knew about, like, her being a mom. Mm -hmm. um, to, Apollo's and, or to Apollo and Artemis. But it, I didn't know that she was, like... No, people really, really liked Leto. Yeah. <laughs> she was, like, really important. She was definitely a god who had a lot of, like, stature. Like, she really yeah. was regarded. And I think in a lot of ways it explains the troublesome birth of Apollo and Artemis because it's literally horrible for her because of Hera. Yeah. Some people say that's because Zeus was the, their father, but actually there's a lot of conjecture that, like, maybe it was because, honestly, people saw Leto the way that Hera wanted to be seen. Mm. As, like, the divine personification of, like, the powerful matriarch of the house. I wonder if that also has anything to do with the children. Well, I guess it couldn't have done with the children themselves yet because they weren't born. But it makes me think about, like, how everyone kind of hates Ares because he's a dickhead. And that might not be the case for Apollo and Artemis. So, like, Zeus's children that aren't Hera's also children and people liking them more than the children that he made with Hera. Oh, you mean because literally all of the gods show up to the birth to celebrate it when it happens? No. <laughs> because it, it straight up happens. Uh, not for Artemis, but for Apollo and their twins. <sighs> yeah. Wow. Well, I don't know if you know about this, but this is... Okay, so we're not getting fully into their birth, but we're just going to fucking talk about it. Um, She gives birth and... A 
uh, Artemis is so fucking cool. Artemis is born first and basically stands up, just like gets like everything so, off of herself, turns around and is the midwife to deliver Apollo. Yeah, and then like helps you. Yeah. Oh my god! I swear to God, such a badass. Absolutely. <laughs> and then all of the gods show up and are like, "What a beautiful baby boy!" And it's like, She's "Wow, like, wow. Yeah. wow. Okay, fine." Um, also, Leto was stuck being pregnant with them for like five years. It was like a whole thing. So it's a pretty big baby, I think, that came out. I don't know. <laughs> so um, so next we have the sort of heavy hitters. We have Kronos and Rhea. And they are the parents of the Olympians. So let's talk Kronos. Now, as we discussed last week, in the Orphic Cosmogony, Kronos and Anonki were the primordial beings which emerged from chaos. However, we didn't get to discuss how they were depicted. They were both serpentine in form. Kronos with three heads, that of a man, a bull, and a lion. They wrapped themselves around the cosmic egg and split it open in order to create the universe and establish order. And then they joined one another, encircling the universe, driving the movements of the heavens and the passage of time. Wow. So that's one telling Hmm. um, of Kronos. But also, you guys remember Faunus, who we discussed last week? Yeah. Yeah. Kronos was often equated with Faunus. Um, and yeah. just like Faunus would be depicted with like the wheel of the zodiac around him. Mm-hmm. However, he was also equated with Aeon, who was the personification of eternity. So a lot of like time god stuff happening, obviously, because we talked about how like initially there was Kronos, who was time, Kronos, who was the Titan, and then basically they like kind of got merged. So in Hesiod's Theogony, it was Kronos who would overthrow his father, Oranos, and establish the supremacy of the Titans over the primordial gods. Essentially, Gaia and Oranos bear the Titans, and they're delighted in the Titans. They love them. They're great. And then Gaia bears some more kids. She has the Hecatonchires, who are giants who have, depending on who you ask, like 100 heads, 100 hands, 100 arms. They're these, like, unbelievable like monsters to behold the cyclopes which are the cyclopses right one-eyed giants mm-hmm. and echidna the mother of all monsters the thing is gaia loved them like gaia loved them no different than the titans i don't even think she saw a difference between them she's a real mother she's a real mother she really genuinely loved them aranos not so much aranos was disgusted by them <laughs> and even more so was threatened by their power these are three formidable oh, yeah. characters and also in most tellings, there's it's like a band of cyclopses and a band of hecatonchires, and then you have like a kid now who's mm. like, "Hey, bitch!" Like it's like they're all <laughs> just kind of chilling, and he's like, "Cool, any of them could like tear me limb from limb, so we're not having this." <laughs> so basically, I guess when she's not looking, he gathers them up and buries them into the earth, which wow. is Gaia. He buries them so far into Gaia's depths, even she cannot get them out, and this causes her pain. Oh. Gaia is incensed by this, and in her rage, she bears a new metal called adamant, Hmm. which is stronger than any other. Does adamant ring a bell for anybody? Yeah. (laughs) Adamantium. Adamantium! Wolverine! Or if you're a Final Fantasy fan, it's a a style of shield. It's a metal in that as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, she bears adamant. And out of it, she fashions a sickle. And she calls on her children to avenge their siblings. In some of the versions, Kronos, the youngest of the Titans, is the only one who answers her call. In others, so did some of his brothers. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Kronos is like, I'll do it. And she's like, okay, cool. Here's the plan. Gives him the sickle. Aranos descends to make love with Gaia. But Kronos was lying in wait. Don't ask me where. 
<laughs> when the time was right, he sprang forward and castrated Aranos, casting his genitals across the sky. Mm. Now, in some tellings, it was Creus, who we talked about earlier, and three of his brothers, Hyperion, Koyos, and Iapetus, who aided Kronos in overthrowing Aranos. They stood at the four corners of the world, seizing hold of their father, the sky, and holding him firm while Kronos castrated him. The four brothers acted as the four cosmic pillars which held up the heavens, separating them from the earth below. Koyos stood at the north, Creus at the south, Iapetus at the east, and Hyperion at the west. Interesting. Regardless of how it was done, those fucking giblets were coming off. So... His blood falls to the earth, and out of it is born the Aranyes, who are the Furies. Remember, lesbian, lesbian love spells. The Gigantes, who are the Giants. And the Meliae, who are the wood nymphs of the ash tree. And then his genitals fell into the ocean, and his blood and his semen mixed with the sea foam. And out of this was born the glorious Aphrodite. Awesome. But it was not over. As Aranos lay dying, he pronounced a grim prophecy. Just as Kronos had usurped him, so would Kronos be usurped by his own children one day. And that's yes. called ancestral trauma. And there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's such a petty thing to be like, oh, yeah, asshole. Well, wait till it's your turn. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Damn. So this brings us to Rhea. Now, Rhea is the sister and wife of Kronos, the Titan goddess of the Earth. And that should bring up something, right? You're like, well, wait a minute. Hold on. She's Titan goddess of the Earth. What's the difference between her and Gaia? Well, she was actually known as Metertheon, which is mother of the gods, and is a great mother goddess in her own right. Gaia was the earth itself, whereas Rhea was the goddess of fertility, motherhood, and generation. So just as Kronos is the eternal flow of time, Rhea is the eternal flow of menstrual blood, birth waters, and breast milk. That which Whoa. makes generations and ancestry possible. Wow, that's awesome. Isn't that fucking metal? I'm just like, oh, it's yeah, so cool. Yeah, that's shit. Yeah. And she was the queen of heaven and the goddess of comfort and ease, as you should be if you're the queen of heaven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we mentioned Kybele in our last episode when we discussed Agdestus as one of the possible mothers. And the thing is, mm -hmm. Kybele, who is called Mountain Mother and is an Anatolian goddess and Phrygia's only known deity, is often conflated with Rhea. You see, when Greek colonizers hit Asia Minor, they encountered Kybele, and she was immediately adopted and spread to mainland Greece around the 6th century BC. However, once she arrived in Greece, she was met with a mixed reception. The Greeks immediately syncretized her with other great goddesses like Gaia, Rhea, and Demeter, and places like Athens evoked her as their sovereign protector. The Greeks saw her as ruling over mountains, town and city walls, fertile nature, and wild animals. So they seem really similar. And here's the thing. Their depictions were almost identical. Okay, there you see a crowned matron who's got an inscrutable look, seated on a throne, surrounded by lions, or riding on a lion, or standing in a chariot drawn by lions. Bad bitch shit, right? Mm. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> the thing is, is that they're kind of different in stature. Not really stature, but like their flavor almost. Because like Rhea is truly an Earth Mother. Kybele is a universal mother. Mm. Okay. 
So more on that, her true nature was really evident in like her most celebrated rites, where she was the great exotic mystery goddess who arrives in a line-drawn chariot to the sound of wild music, flowing wine, and ecstatic dance that would honestly make maenads look like nuns. Like, it was nothing that the <laughs> Greeks had ever seen before. <laughs> this all probably may have been okay with the Greeks, but Kybele's priestesses were known as the Galli, and... Okay, how can I tell you about the galley? Let, let, let's start off on how you, how do you make a galley? Well, you have the Sanguinaria, or the Dies Sanguis, the Day of Blood. This is what the Romans called it. This is the one day of the year that new galley were born. And it was the compromise struck by a very suspicious and deeply bureaucratic Roman government, and by extension society, and the cult of Kybele, as to how their priesthood's numbers could be maintained. At the Sanguinaria, the priestesses to be, the ones that would be inducted, would gather in front of the temple to cheering crowds. On either side of the temple steps, the incumbent galley would be working the inductees into an ecstatic frenzy with a frenzied cacophony of music and action, whipping them as they frantically danced in honor of their sovereign goddess. Once it was their turn, the inductee would take center stage on the steps, declare her devotion to the goddess herself, and would be handed a broken pottery shard or some such implement, and would then castrate herself to the roar of the crowd. Wow. She would then, with all her might, hurl her severed genitals. If you were in the crowd and you got pelted by somebody's severed genitals, you might be a bit put off. But, rest assured, this actually was seen as one of the most powerful blessings that the average Roman could hope for. Oh my god. But if she had trained, ah. and I have to assume that she would have, I think there were some major league pitchers among the galley, her severed bits would fly past the crowds and would make it through the open door or window of one of the houses or businesses which faced the temple. Oh my. And if that happened, the people who lived there or worked there became instantly and irrevocably responsible for the new priestess, for her medical care, for her recovery, and furnishing her her first garments as a priestess of Kybele. Oh, so you're definitely trying to make it into someone's house. Uh, yeah. yeah like, and also, yeah. like, I know this is, like, kind of low-tech, but state-sponsored transition is a thing I'm super into. So, like, that's yeah. great, okay? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it takes a village yeah. to raise a trans woman. Um, I think that this is, like really incredible and speaks to Kybele's nature. I mean, she is so deeply tied to being a sovereign mother and protector of gender variant individuals. Agdistus is her child. Yeah. And so you have this like really incredible situation here and it's well known. This isn't like modern conjecture. Various ancient Roman sources referred to the galley as a middle or third gender. People who were writing, detracting them, saying this should not be done, were saying they're a third gender and them doing this gives them powers of prophecy. Oh, shit. Yeah. It was a love-hate thing, as it always is, with, like, cishet men and trans women, because the galley were really a sight to behold. They had long, bleached hair. They wore heavy makeup, yellow priestess robes, golden pendants, earrings, wow. bracelets, and sometimes, for funsies, a turban, also in yellow. I love this look. Uh, yeah. The thing about the galley, too, is obviously, like we mentioned, they, they were not welcomed by everybody, but especially in deeply patriarchal Greece uh, and Rome, by extension. But the galley proved themselves to be a force to be reckoned with. For example, the second in command of the galley was known as Batakis. That was the title. The Batakis traveled to Rome in 103 AD to address the Senate. The plebeian tribune fought tooth and nail to deny her the right to speak in front of the prestigious center of Roman life and law. That tribune, 
died of a fever shortly after she was done speaking. Uh-oh. Oh. Because they had performed their initiatory castration, they were forbidden from Roman citizenship and rights of inheritance. So they were essentially mendicants living off alms and telling fortunes. They were only allowed to leave the goddess complex a few days a year in April around the Megalosia, during which they did the majority of their fundraising. They were beheld by most with a mixture of fascination, scorn, and deep suspicion, which any trans person understands. However, given that they were the priests of a state cult, they were sacred and inviolate. You laid one fucking finger on them, death penalty. On the day of mourning for Attis, remember Attis, the sleeping god? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the cult of Kaibeli, he was the first galley. Interesting. Because mm. remember, he castrated himself? Yeah. Basically, on the day of mourning for Attis during the Megalosia, they would run through the streets, wild and disheveled, shrieking and dancing to the noise of pipes and tambourines and flogging themselves bloody in ecstasy before their goddess. Which, like, hmm. everybody's got to get down however they need. So, Kybele was so beloved and revered in the Greco-Roman world that her cult and the galley, who maintained it, survived long after the Christianization of Rome. Huh. In hmm. fact, in the early imperial era, the Roman poet Milius added Kybele as the 13th deity of the Zodiac. Each of the 12 houses was seen as ruled by one of the Olympians, or what they were called in Roman terms, Dei Consentus. And Kybele hmm. was added to the fifth house as a co-ruler of Leo alongside Jupiter. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So what do we think about Kybele and the galley? Low-key, my legs just kind of got faint. When, like, as I pictured it, because I was like, huh. Just, <laughs> just like, just like, whew. I wish I could go to the initiation ceremony. It sounds fucking amazing. But I love that they're like hyping themselves up and like music and dance, you know, like, I love that it's like this huge, like, bombastic rich. It's a rich, you know, this crazy ritual that they're all doing together. Mm -hmm. That's bonkers. It's metal imagine. as fuck, but. Yeah. That's, so if that interested you, I have good news for you, my dear listeners. We are going to have an entire episode dedicated to Kybele, the Magna Mater, and her incredible gender diverse and gender transgressive cult. So look forward to that in the future. We have two more Titan goddesses here to talk about, and then one last pair. So we have Themis, who was the Titan goddess of divine law and order. She was a major prophetic goddess who spoke through the Oracle of Delphi for a time. Like we said, there was sort of a succession. Through the Oracle of Delphi, she gave humanity the original laws of justice and morality. Mm -hmm. Above all things, piety, hospitality, which if you know anything about ancient Greece, you know hospitality was like literally the law <laughs> of the land. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good governance, conduct of assembly, and offerings to the gods. In fact, the word Themis referred to divine law and the rules of conduct established by custom and tradition. She bore six children, the springtime Hore, who are the seasons, and the Moirai, the fates. That's if you don't go with the Nyx version. Right. Well, I have a question. Yeah. Because, like, the with the Moirai, where do you find them making more sense to be coming from? Because for me, it makes more sense for them to come from Nyx. Personally, I'm a fan of the version where they're not in a genealogy. That they're like one of the primordial forces That's that has awesome. to be there. You know, especially in a lot of the yeah. tellings where it's Kronos and Ananki. They're like there on the sidelines. Just kind of like, we're here. Right. Um, because they would be the ones gotcha. that, if Kronos and Ananki are the primordial forces, they're the ones that are sort of dispensing that. Yeah, that makes right. a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. More sense. <laughs> so, uh, our next Titan goddess is Nemocini. Now... This one is a doozy because I actually had to look up how to say her name. 
It's M-N. It's Nemosini. It's Nemosini. I thought it was Nemosini this whole time. <laughs> no, it's Nemosini. You say Nemosini, I say Nemosini. Yeah, there you go. Um, so she's the eldest titan, and she's the goddess of memory, words, and language. She also played a role as a prophetic goddess and was the mother of the muses. In fact, she is sometimes included on a list of the three elder titan muses who most people don't even know about, who preceded the famous nine Olympic muses. If you've seen the Hercules movie by Mm. Disney, they're the gospel singers. (laughs) Her role may seem simple. However, she was the patroness of the memorization, which allowed oral history to perpetuate itself before the advent of writing. This tradition lives on today in our use of the term mnemonic device. Mnemonic. Yeah, right. makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So mnemonic devices, if you don't know, are the techniques that we use to aid in the retention and retrieval of information. And she was often invoked in the first few lines of basically all the epic poems, like the Odyssey. You would, as the storyteller, invoke her so that she could help you remember every part of the story. Right. Got it. I like her. She's cool. Yeah, I... That's really cool! Like, ugh! Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I like I knew a little bit uh, about Nemocini. Um, but never made the connection of like, you're what allows oral history to happen because we need memory to be able to do that. Right. Um, I just kind of like saw her as, you know, like maybe I saw her more as like one of those, uh, demonos, demonos, inaccurately, but like demonos, cause like memory as a concept, I'm like, okay, yeah, of course we need that. Right. But like, then it, it makes a lot more sense and is way cooler that it's like, no, no, no. It's like the memory that allows like us to have culture and like, yeah. like a history yeah. and like really tell stories to each other and like that's really cool um if that tickled your fancy i'm super excited to tell you about the next thing that has to do with her because it's gonna fucking blow your mind her name was also given to one of the rivers in hades what oh. and it was the opposite of lethe oh right oh. drinking of the river lethe would make you forget and it was required of all dead souls before they could be allowed to reincarnate so that they would not remember their previous life. Right. As its opposite, the River Nemesini held the potential to make you remember all of your lives. Oh, no, hmm. that's yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about them, but the Orphic Mysteries taught that you should instead drink from the River Nemesini. Because if you did, you would stop the process of reincarnation and become free of it. Mm, wow. Which is wild. Hmm. That is wild. And yeah, she had a whole bunch of daughters. Um, so I haven't mentioned a partner for either Nemesini or Themis because their partner's Zeus. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not just a sister fucker. He's also all about his aunts. Yeah. Loves that. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is why I don't believe he didn't lust after like, the night sky. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> he lusts after everyone. Well, I feel like Aphrodite being on a bent to like bet everybody on Olympus came from somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are the nine iconic muses. They are Calliope, who is epic poetry, Cleo, who is history, Euterpe, who is music and lyric poetry, Erato, who is love poetry, Melpomene, who is tragedy, Polyhymnia, who has the coolest fucking name. Yeah, Polyhymnia is sick. Which is hymns, Terpsichore, who's dance, 
Thalia, who is comedy, and Urania, who is astronomy. Wow, those are good ones. And interestingly, they're not necessarily daemonists. There are, like, a lot of myths where, like, they actually have characteristics and they, like, show up. Hmm. Mm. There's also several myths where, like, somebody's fucking stupid and has hubris and, like, tries to, like, say, like, I can do this better than the muses. And the muses show up and are like, <laughs> sorry, what, what was that? What did you just say? And like, what was said? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they let, let people fucking have it. Okay, so we are on to our last pair, y'all. We have Yapetus and Clymene. So Yapetus, mm. his name means wound or pierce, and it kind of implies with a spear. And he's presumed to be the Titan mm. god of mortality and the definite oh, lifespan mm. for humans and even violent death. He was a child of Uranus, the heavens, and the heavens were seen as measuring all time. So, like his brother Kronos, he's a god of time, but this is seen in his enforcement of mortality, and it was carried on by his own sons, who would be the ones to create humanity and all mortal life. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now, his partner is Clymene. She's one of those many Oceanids that we mentioned. Clymene was the titan goddess of fame and renown. But she was also an Oceanid. Hmm. She was often depicted as the handmaiden of the goddess Hera, and she embodied the fame that Hera offered at the judgment of Paris, which we haven't talked about. But really, really quickly, Eris, goddess of strife, gets one of the Hesperides golden apples, and the, the Hesperides golden apples had this magical thing where, like, it didn't matter who they were thrown in front of, they would fight to the death to get a hold of it, even if they were, like, best friends, lovers, mm-hmm. family, didn't matter. She inscribes in it, for the fairest... And throws it into the middle of a party she was not invited to because I don't know why they didn't send her a fucking invitation. She's the literal goddess of strife and discord. And there was a wedding going on and she's like, you didn't invite me. (laughs) Have fun, bitch. She throws it into the party and lands (laughs) smack on the floor in between Aphrodite, Athena, and Hera. Oh, God. Yeah. You know what comes out of this? The fucking Trojan War. Yeah. (laughs) So basically, they're like, obviously, I'm the fairest. No, I'm the fairest. No, I'm the fairest. And so then they call over Zeus, and Zeus actually for once has good judgment and is like, I'm not getting involved with this. (laughs) (laughs) And Zeus is like, oh, there's a really wise man that you can go see named Paris, who's a great judge of beauty. And I'm like, great. This is all about the male gaze. Wonderful. So they go and they, you know, stand before him to be judged. They're goddesses standing in front of a mortal man to see who he thinks is the most fuckable. I can't even deal with it. So they start making (laughs) offers to try and like convince him, right? And like Athena's like, I'm gonna be on your side. You're gonna destroy the fucking Greeks. You guys have been at war with them for centuries. You're, that's it. You got me on your side. You're gonna decimate the Greeks. Which I kind of feel like there had to be a momentary pause where, like, the other two goddesses were like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah, wait, hey. They the named hell? Athens after you. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, you, you want to fucking play like that? And so Hera says, I will offer you fame and renown beyond all measure. You will be the most glorious figure to go down in history. And in the art of this, she has Clymene with her who could mm. grant him this. And then Aphrodite is like, I know what you want. You want true love. And I'm going to guarantee you true love with the most beautiful woman who's ever lived. And, of course, he picks Aphrodite. And that most beautiful woman, she's got a fucking husband. And he doesn't care. So he goes and he fucking takes her. And some people say willingly, because she really did not like who she was married to. Runs off to Troy with her. And all the Greeks are like, oh, we had the most beautiful woman in the world. And somebody stole her. We had to go to war. And that's... 
That's the Trojan War. Oh, oh, Sparta. It takes 10 years, and then nothing happens for nine of it, and then all the stories take place in the 10th year, and there's a horse. Okay, (laughs) there we go. And there's more horses. (laughs) Yeah. And then Aeneas escapes and founds Rome after having Dido kill him. Yeah. (laughs) So there's some really interesting things about Clamenti, because on the surface you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. She's like Nike, but not as interesting, right? Here's the thing. It's thought that she might have been a Chthonic goddess, because the masculine version of her name, Climenos, had two uses. And one was as a mm. euphemism for Hades. And oh. her role oh. as personifying fame was usually reserved for renown and death, like the glory of fallen heroes. Right. Oh, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is also a very, like, sounds like a very Hera kind of honor to be like, yeah, 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 you'll be super famous and honorable. And death. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> totally would not tell him that. <laughs> There's also another aspect, but let's just backtrack again real quick to Iapetus. Remember, that's her partner. Mm. And this applies to both of them. Iapetus and Clymene both have something to do with, like, craftsmanship. You see, Iapetus, it means the piercer, or to Mm. pierce, and it implies with a spear, which is a crafted weapon. Clymene shares her name, Clymenos, as uh, an epithet for Hephaestus, who is the god of the forge on Olympus. And is called this name in Homeric poetry. So there's this crafty thing that they both have. And that, again, gets passed on to their children, who I haven't named yet. But they are the ones who crafted humanity and all mortal things. And they did so out of clay. Mm -hmm. So that passes down. Interesting. Hmm. And their children were often portrayed as the ancestors of humanity. And from them, we inherited some of our best and our worst traits. Because Prometheus was known to be sly and crafty. Epimetheus was inept and guileless, even foolish or stupid, depending on how kind somebody wants to be. Atlas <laughs> was enduring, strong and powerful, but excessively daring. And Menoetius was just a fucking douchebag. So they had four <laughs> sons, and they were Prometheus, Epimetheus, Menoetius, and Atlas. Prometheus was the titan god of forethought. That's exactly what his name meant. He was the creator and benefactor of humanity and the author of the arts and sciences. His brother Epimetheus is hindsight. So think prologue and epilogue. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Epimetheus was hindsight and was the god of afterthought and excuses. <laughs> He's the creator of Earth's animals and other non-human mortal creatures. And he was the husband of Pandora. Yes, that Pandora. Right. This is not a Cleopatra situation. There's one, and she's trouble. It's like, hey, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guy. That's your superpower? Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't have known it was going to happen, so I didn't tell you. Right. But you sh- you probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I can see that you just made a fatal mistake a lot more yeah. clearly than everybody else. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? And then you have Menoetius, who, like I said, is a fucking idiot. Um, His name means doomed might. What? He's the titan god of violent anger and rash action and was known to be full of hubris, even for a god. Oh, no, that's bad. So, yeah, he's the god of smoke. It's like, who wants smoke? I'm here to hand it out. Yeah. Um, We have have small, medium, large. Um, We have the extra large version that you can put in your freezer so you can just have smoke whenever you need it. 
<laughs> right. And then the problem is, is that the god of smoke detectors comes around and is like, mm, boop, 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 that's a lie. You have no smoke to provide. Your shit's weak, son. And then yeah. they're on while and out and he loses. Um, and then Nick Cannon shits in his mouth. I don't know. But basically, that's Nick. the <laughs> situation. Um, you know she's a scat queen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Her stage name was Ella Shitzgerald. Oh God! This is we <laughs> we are quickly not approaching. We are we are moving away. Yeah, um, we are moving away from God and all things that are godly. Yeah. Um, so the last of the four brothers is Atlas. Atlas was the titan god of astronomy and the revolution of the constellations and the movements of the heavens. He was known to be skilled in philosophy and mathematics, and he was credited with creating the first celestial sphere and inventing astronomy. Oh. And he had a lot of really important kids. His children included the Hesperides, the Hyades, the Pleiades, and the Nymph Calypso. And by the way, his name, Atlas, is the source for the Atlantic Ocean. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I also didn't know he had all those jobs, because I think a lot of the like conceptions of him that I've seen or just he's just big and strong and then he gets tricked by Heracles. Well, because basically all the stories about him tend to be about post Titanomachy. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. He has a pretty big role in the Titanomachy because he's like Cronus's number one general. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Well, so he's it's super strong. Well, because it's basically not Cronus. You would think it would be Cronus against Zeus. It's really not. It's straight up Cronus against Atlas. And Atlas yeah. gives him a run for his fucking money. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. So you have that to look forward to. Also, I like the idea of Atlas being super androgynous, so I dug this up for you. This is real. Hermaphroditus has an alternate name. Remember Hermaphroditus? Of course. Mm. That alternate name is Atlantius. Ah. This name draws Atlas into their story. But how so? Well, we love an alternate storyline. It's like a DLC for mythology. <laughs> we know that there are multiple versions of the godly genealogy. In another version, Atlas was known to be the primal androgyn who bore two children, and in doing so, split his androgynous nature into the male Hermes and the female Aphrodite. Oh. Uh-huh. I've never heard that. Interesting. However, it seems androgyny is not just the source, but also the destiny, as the sacred androgyny was reformed in their child, Atlantius, who we know and love as Hermaphroditus. Oh. Isn't that wild? Interesting. Yeah. That's crazy. I've never heard that version. Interesting. So it's kind of like a diamond where it's like it starts at one point, moves to two, and then moves back to yeah, one. Yeah, I like that, mm -hmm. that that image. Interesting. Yeah. It's very um, fluid. I also wanted to just kind of like throw in a couple honorable mentions. So we have just like some minor titans for everybody. <laughs> we have Lelantos, who is the titan god of breezes and light winds. And his name actually <laughs> oh means my. the unnoticed and the unseen one. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's a, he's a draft. It's a small draft. <laughs> a light breeze. Please notice me, please. Right? And then we have Melissius, who is the titan god of honey, a key protector of baby Zeus, and the one that's feeding Zeus honey. That's like a whole thing. I don't understand. They're just feeding baby Zeus honey, which like you don't give newborns honey. Anyway, his daughters um, were also <laughs> Zeus's nurses. So, and they had, I don't know, what, honey coming out of their breasts? I don't know. Probably. But it was just honey all over the fucking place. Bee women. Um, and then you have <laughs> Forcus, who in some tellings is one of the big 12. Forcus is the old man of the sea. Hmm. Yeah. And then last but not least, we have Titan, 
Yes, guys, there is a fucking Titan named Titan. Titan. Oh. Not Titian, not 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 <laughs> Titus, nothing, not, not nothing, just just Titan. The Titan, Titan is the Titan God who instructed humanity on the movements of the heavens, the stars, and celestial bodies and established the agricultural calendar. Oh. Wait, is Prometheus here the person who gives humans fire? Because mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly how that happened. We're going to talk about that next week because it's not a part of... Well, actually, we're not going to talk about that next week. I thought we would probably talk about Prometheus during Zeus's episode. Okay. Cool. Because it's kind of an important story, and I think it also tells you a lot about Zeus. It's like, yeah, okay, we know Zeus is like a fucking rapey son of a bitch. But turns out, like, he's also, like, really wants to... He does not like humanity very much. No. (laughs) You find out. So that's something, you know, that's what I'm all about. Like episode one, expose Trump. He's a centaur. We got to expose everybody. Everybody's getting called out. This is a call-out podcast. For what they really are. For what they really are. You have a call-out that's 5,000 years in the making, Zeus. We're fucking holding you accountable. We're here for you. <laughs> With torches and fucking pitchforks. And the torches came from Prometheus. And that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what did we think about this round of Titans? I like the, I like the, the what's her name? Mon, uh, Nemesini. The, no. Is that what it is? The one that M- memory comes from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nemesini. Nemesini. I really like her list of. We could just call her Kathy Najimi. That's fine. Yeah. I really like I like her. I like that. I like the idea that that's like what we had to have to be able to like hold our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Yeah, I also really like the Nemocini thing. That's super cool. I think, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's like it, it gives like a really, this like middle between the Primordial and the Olympians. Is like there's so much content here. <laughs> it really is. It's like it really is kind of like the like the primordials are the first intro game, and then like the Olympians are like the rest of the game, and then this is just like without looking at the Titans or really even knowing that much about them other than they fought the Olympians. It's just kind of this like what was going on, mm-hmm. <laughs> like like between when things were created and then when people were fighting over those things that were created, like and so like this helps a lot thinking about like the rivers and the oceans being now populated, mm-hmm. and then like mm-hmm. uh like you know kind of life like not just the, the habitat or chance for life, but then actual like aspects of life starting to like cover the planet. Um, as of the mm-hmm. Titans is very interesting. And then also like for me coming like from more like a like maybe like a history standpoint or like trying to find that link, the idea of the, t- the time of the Titans um, and Nemosini or sorry, uh, Nemosini, just call her Kathy Nagy. Um, like before I'm people were writing, you, th- bring you joy. <laughs> <laughs> before people were writing things down, mm-hmm. um, and like that existence that happened for a really long time before we started writing things down. Uh, I'm glad that that has kind of filled in because it makes everything else makes a little more sense. And we're like though. moving towards being human, bit by bit. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like we're getting closer and closer to the world and form that we know. Hmm. Which is also so much language stuff. Oh my like god! So many language the wordplay, roots. all the roots, and all the yeah. It's so interesting how much comes from this. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm really happy that you guys got so much out of it. That's really cool. Um, I know it was a lot of information, but I tried to keep it pumping and you know kind of only get the essential stuff out there. 
We had some cool stories, which was nice. Um, but next week, I'm going to be honest, it's kind of just going to be like all story. Like we're going to talk the, Tata- the ins and outs of the <laughs> Tatanamaki because now you know the characters. So it's like, well, yeah. geez, how do they go to war? And we're not just going to talk the Tatanamaki. We're going to talk the ages of men, like I said. We're also going to talk the Gigantomaki, which is the war that breaks out after the Tatanamaki and mm-hmm. is some serious shit. Because I'll tell you right now, honestly, the Tatanamaki is kind of a clusterfuck. But the Gigantomaki is <laughs> fucking scary. Like, Yeah, I know a little bit about it, but the only thing I know is just like horrific images. <laughs> I like that we're going into like the, the full-out action movie s- session of this podcast. Yeah, it's not Endgame, but it's like Thor Ragnarok. Uh, and well, no, that's that's a little more upbeat. What would be Infinity War? It would be Infinity War, if mm, you will. Gotcha. Yeah. So cool. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another great episode of When God Was Queer. We absolutely love being able to hang out with you and tell these stories and learn more together. So with that, we will see you in the next episode when it is time for war. Until then, (laughs) (laughs) until then, we'll see you next time. And remember, be be gay, gay, do do crimes. crimes. The The gods gods are always always watching. watching. Bye. 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 We have to say bye. Okay. Bye.